Would you turn with me, please, to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. As I mentioned, I just got back from San Francisco. I spent the weekend, uh, actually from Wednesday through Saturday, at uh, a National Youth Workers Convention in the city. Uh, I, that, that also was a shock to my system. I, uh, I was the old man of the uh, convention. Years ago, I used to do workshops for them on university ministries, and uh, they asked me back for old time's sake, and I uh, did some Bible teaching. These were uh, young men and women from all over the West Coast, most of them youth pastors in uh, churches in California and Oregon and a few from Washington, Utah, and Nevada. Uh, it's quite an experience. I, I realized right away that I've been out of that scene way too long. Uh, I think I'm, my hearing is permanently impaired from the uh, rock concerts that they had every night. Uh, it, it, it was uh, astonishing. I, on the way into Boise, I kept trying to clear my ears, and then I realized that it was not the, the, uh, the uh, difference in, uh, in cabin pressure. It was that I was going deaf. But uh, it, was, it was quite an interesting experience. I spent a lot of time just talking to, to people, asking them how their ministries are going. And uh, I, I discovered what I've always suspected about so many people in, in ministry. Uh, we really don't know what we're doing. I, I spent considerable time in, in, uh, in two seminaries, one very conservative, one very liberal. And at neither one was I really told what to do. I, I picked up some tools and skills, and a few skills, and, and getting into the scriptures on my own, but nobody told me what to do. And I discovered it was true as I talked to these uh, young men and women who have invested their lives in ministry. They're very uncertain about what their task is. And uh, it, it struck me that this is not in any sense a uh, condemnation of what's going on in California because it's going on all over the place. We've encrusted the ministry with layers of sophistication to the point where we've forgotten what it's all about. We don't know what the basics are. Uh, I was thinking about what we've done to wristwatches the other day. You know, we have we have wristwatches that chime and tell us the the uh, uh, the time of day in London and and check your your uh, blood pressure and uh, all sorts of things. It wouldn't at all surprise me someday if I went down to buy a watch and discovered that uh, here's a watch that doesn't tell time. It does everything else but tells tells time. I went back and just bought a basic watch. It has a little hand and a big hand and. It has 12 numbers on it. It's all it has, you know. It doesn't doesn't play the minute waltz. It doesn't tell me what time it is in London or the barometric pressure. It just tells me what time it is. And it struck me that so much of ministry is like that. We've got all the, the accoutrements. We've got all of the embellishments. But the heart of the thing is gone. We don't know what we're doing. And And this text tells us what we're doing. I was really struck as I was reading through this this passage in my room in the hotel this past week, this passage tells us what to do, how to go about a ministry that's really effective. If we want to impact people, if we want to change lives, and I think that's something we want to do. We don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to spend the next 20 to, to 40 years of our life just, just doing nothing, influencing no one. We want to impact people. It's all right here, and it's so simple. It's so very, very simple. Now let me read uh, to you from chapter 14, beginning with verse 12. Jesus, remember, is speaking to his apostles in the upper room. He's talked about his departure, and they registered 
registered fear when they discovered that, uh, that he was leaving. And so he assures them he's coming back. That's in verse 3. I will come again. We talked about that two weeks ago. Now, in this, in this section, he turns to another issue. Uh, the, the dread of death, the fear of the future is taken care of. We're certain of our destiny. But what about life right now? What are the resources to live life in the world in which we live? That's his concern in the verses that follow, in, in verses 12 and on to the end of the chapter, verse 31. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also. That's a staggering promise when you stop to think about it. That's not just addressed to the apostles, that's addressed to us. The works that Jesus did, we can do also. But that's not all he says. Greater works, greater works than these shall he do because I go to the Father. Greater works than these shall he do. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, if I came across that verse for the first time, I would just be absolutely stunned and staggered by that statement. That is a, that's a promise. Our Lord healed the sick, raised the dead. He healed leprosy, something that had never been done before. The magnitude of his works is astonishing. But he says we'll do greater works than he did. How can that be? Furthermore, he says in verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Do you hear that? He not only promises that we'll do greater works than he, he says all we have to do is ask for something and we'll get it. Just ask for it and get it. Well, we have to understand what Jesus means. What, what, what are we supposed to ask for? Can we ask for a vacation in the Bahamas next week if it keeps snowing? Be assured that, that we will get it. While I was in San Francisco, I had lunch with a friend of mine, Jeff Farrar, who leads a Bible study for the San Francisco 49ers. And he was telling me about a remarkable revival that's broken out among the, the 49ers. A number of those men have become believers through the witness of Wendell Tyler, mostly. And uh, Jeff meets with them once a week, and they, they study the Scriptures. And there was a, a brand new, uh, several brand new Christians in this Bible uh, study. And, and Jeff was talking about, he was teaching through Galatians, and he was talking about the freedom that we have in Christ. And he said, now, uh, these men and their wives are there, and he said, now, now tell me, he says, Jesus says we've been set free. He says, from what have we been set free? Now think, from what have we been set free? And uh, one of their uh, their running backs, I dare dare not tell you who he is because you would know you would know him, uh, who's only been a Christian a, a few weeks, said poverty. And Jeff said, "Huh?" And he said, "Poverty." He said, "I asked God to make me rich, and He did." And Jeff said, "Well, uh, I, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. That's, that's not what Jesus means here. That we can ask for wealth, and He'll give it to us." We have to understand what he's saying. Now, keep this in the back of your mind, because we're going to come back and talk about it. Jesus promises we'll do greater works than he, and we can ask for anything, and he'll give it to us. We have to know what he's talking about. Now, let's go on. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, that's Jesus' description of a Christian. That, that's not uh, uh, an especially pious person who loves him and keeps his commandments. That's what it means to be a Christian. We really love Jesus. If we love the Lord with all of our hearts, we'll do what he's asked us to do. We'll take his yoke upon us, and we'll learn from him. We'll submit to his lordship. We're not at liberty to question what he says, 
we, we, we are to obey, to obey, trust and obey. There's no other way, not only to be happy in Jesus, but to be a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean we're, we're perfect in our behavior, because who is? Fortunately, our Lord does not expect perfection, but he does look for a submissive heart, like David's. David had a lot of trouble in his life, but he was a man after God's own heart because he loved the Lord with all of his heart and he wanted to please him. Now, that's just uh, our Lord's description of a Christian. Don't be mystified by this. Verse uh, 15 ought to characterize all of us who claim to be Christians. We will love the Lord, we will be devoted to him, we will adore him, and we'll want to please him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, Jesus goes on. This, this is the condition, you see. If you love me and keep my commandments, then certain things will be true. Verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him, doesn't see him with spiritual eyes, or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, this is Jesus' short course in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they told us in seminary this is, this is uh, the doctrine of pneumatology. Now, that's not the study of Steve Newman's thinking or Cardinal Newman's thinking. That's, uh, that's the study of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for spirit is pneumos. We get our word pneumatology, or pneumatics from it. Uh, it's also the Greek word for wind. Wind and spirit are the same word in, in the Greek language, pneumos. So pneumatology is the study of the wind or the study of the spirit. So this is a, a brief course in understanding the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing Jesus wants us to understand is this. Now, listen carefully, because there's a lot of confusion on this point. Follow his argument. If you are a Christian, according to verse 15, then you have the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you possess the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's his description of a believer. And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you the Holy Spirit. You do not have to pray for the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. You do not have to ask for the Spirit. You do not have to have some special experience from which you receive the Spirit. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've submitted to his Lordship in your life, you possess the Holy Spirit. I have that on the authority of Jesus' own words. I didn't make that up. Jesus said that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that all of us, he's talking about the church in Corinth that was filled with a lot of carnality. They were thinking like men, Paul says. Paul says, all of us, and he's talking about the apostles as well as those that live in Corinth, have all been made to drink of one spirit. And in, in Romans 8, Paul talks about those who are not Christians as sensual, having not the Spirit. So if you are a Christian, you currently possess the Holy Spirit. If you are not yet a Christian, you do not. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, the second thing that he says is that uh, this other helper, that is the Spirit of truth, will be with you, 
with the apostles and with us forever. In other words, you cannot lose him. You cannot drive him out of your life through sin. We used to have an old football around our house. We had it for years, and I finally ran over it with the car and totaled it. But, but it was it was uh, it had a leaky bladder, and uh, we'd get out and throw it around a little bit, and it would go down, and we'd have to go in the garage and pump it up, and then we'd go throw it around a little bit more, and, and we never took the time to pull the bladder out and, and patch it. We just played with it like that for years. Now that's the way a lot of uh, that's what a lot of Christians think about about the possession of the spirit. They have a slow leak, and uh, he leaks out after a while. And they have to go to a meeting and get pumped up, get more of the Spirit. But Jesus says, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit, and he is with you forever. Did you hear that? Jesus was with the disciples in, in, in the flesh for three and a half years. But this Spirit will be with you forever. Ever. He will not leak out. You do not need to be pumped up. You, you, when you became a Christian, you received all of the Holy Spirit that you will ever receive. Nothing more, nothing less. You didn't receive a part of the Holy Spirit. You got the whole thing, and you have the whole thing forever until the Lord comes back. Now, the third thing that uh, you need to know is that... Uh, he uh, Now, he is first speaking of the apostles here. We need to understand that in verse 17 when he says he abides with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is in here. I don't know where, but he's somewhere in the human spirit. He is within us. In other words, you don't have to go to a special place to get more of the Spirit. You, there, there is not more of the Spirit in this building than there is in any other part of, of Boise. If I can say this respectfully, there is no more of the Spirit here than there is in a, in a, a downtown bar because He does not reside in buildings. He resides in people. There are some folks who want to go to Israel because they feel the Spirit when they get there. They get so much closer to the Spirit. I've been in Israel. Some of you have been in Israel. It's nice to be there, but, but we're not any closer to the, the Spirit of God there than we are here. I, I heard a story a few months ago about a church that lost its pastor, and they wrote to the denomination to get a new pastor, and they said, we, we want a new pastor, but we want two qualifications. Number one, please do not send us anyone who knows Greek. And secondly, do not send us anyone who's been to Israel, because people are inclined to talk about it all the time and the great experience they had there, and they may give the impression that that's the only place you can find God. But He's within you, you see. He lives in you. Wherever you go, the Holy Spirit is. That's why the New Testament tells us that we are a temple of the Spirit of God. He indwells us. He makes our bodies a sanctuary. He's within us. Now, the last thing I want you to know, and this is by far the most important, and this is what most people, I think, don't understand. Notice, notice what Jesus says. He abides with you. And I ask, in what sense was he abiding with the apostles? The word means alongside, you know, sort of here, with you. He abides with you and will be in you. Now listen to verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
So the Holy Spirit is nothing more or less than our Lord Jesus, who has come to indwell us, you see. You see how he's arguing? Now remember in verse 3, his coming there is the second coming, when he comes for us at the end of life, of our life. This coming refers to Pentecost in the experience of the apostles, but it refers to our conversion today. Pentecost, you don't get your model of Christian, uh, of the way the Holy Spirit works all the time from Pentecost. That was an unusual thing. For us now, when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, and He is nothing more and nothing less than the Lord Jesus Himself who indwells you. That's what Paul describes as the treasure in an earthen vessel. Do you realize that? Do you realize that the same Lord Jesus that walked here on this earth for three and a half years with the apostles and who did these mighty works now lives in you? Now, to me, that's the genius of the Christian life. We grow by laying hold of His power within us. We are effective because we keep reaching down inside and laying hold of Him. Anamara Lindbergh says that, uh, you know, at times of stress, you need to reach way down deep inside and lay hold of that beautiful person in there. Now, I don't know about you, but I reach way down inside myself, and all I find is a lot of crud. I can't find that beautiful person down there. And I don't have the strength to do it. When I was working with students, I became acquainted with a... Uh, a young man by the name of Charlie Johnson. He now is in Europe with uh, Clark's uh, operation, working with Campus Crusade for Christ. And Charlie at that time was president of the student body at the University of California at Berkeley, and he was there when the campus just came unglued. They were tearing the place apart, burning buildings down, and, and uh, it was just a frightful situation. Charlie wasn't a Christian at the time. He became a believer through that experience and through the witness of certain uh, Christians on the campus. And he was really distressed, a very conscientious young man. He wanted to try to bring peace to the campus. And so he, he as he tells it, he called his dad up one day and he said, what should I do? His father's a very wise man. His father said, well, Charlie, he said, just, just reach way down inside yourself and, and you'll find the resources there to, to change things on that campus. Just be tough. Just do the best you can. And Charlie thought, well, that's really good advice. So he hung up and he started to walk away and he realized that's exactly what he was doing. He'd been reaching down inside for the last six months and, and trying to do the very best that he could, and he just could not quell the riots, and he couldn't bring peace to that campus, and he, he was just utterly desperate. Now, that sounds like such good advice, but it really doesn't work, because when you reach down inside, there's nothing there, really. Not for the really tough things in life, not for the times that our marriages fall apart or our, our children begin to give us grief or when we lose our jobs. and you know Those are the, the, the really stressful times. And you reach down inside, there's nothing there. But as a Christian, you reach down inside, there's something there. It's the same Lord Jesus that lived his majestic life the way he lived it 1,900 years ago. He's there available. I thought again while I was in, in San Francisco, my trolley car analogy, which I often use. You know, trolleys, the trolley cars in San Francisco don't have a motor in the in, inside the vehicle. All they have is a, a kind of a clamp apparatus that's attached to a lever in the the uh, brake man or whatever he's called, I've forgotten what they call him now, pulls back on this thing and, and it clamps down on the cable that's underneath the street. And I thought, that's just exactly what we do as Christians. 
There's no power in us. We're not going to change anything. We can't change our own lives, much less change the world. But there is a, an endless cable running inside, which is the life, the risen life of our Lord Jesus available to us. And all we have to do is reach way down deep inside and clamp onto that life. And he, it's available to us to, to stand in the face of adversity, to to do whatever we have to do, to have the moral courage to make decisions that are tough, but we know are right. It's there. The power is there, you see. Now, that's what it means to have the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of doctrine and theology that we could talk about, but basically all you need to know is that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have him forever. And he is within you, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ who's available to you. Do you believe that? Come on, don't just sit there. Do you believe that? Okay, good, good. We made one point anyway. <clears throat> now, verse 19. After a little while, the world will behold me no more. And Jesus was going to the cross. He was going to die. And they wouldn't see him any longer with the eyes of, of, the, of the flesh. But you will behold me, not because our Lord was visibly present, but in a spiritual sense, they would perceive him. They would apprehend him. You will behold me. Because I live, because I'm going to live again, you shall live. That is, you will really live. And he's speaking very enigmatically, and I'm sure the disciples didn't understand at this point what he was talking about. But later they did. In that day, which is Pentecost, when the Spirit came, you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now you see this perfect union again that he's talked about all, all, all through the Gospel of John. He's united to the Father. He and the Father are one. And now he says, the Father and I are going to come dwell in you. So that all three members of the Godhead, body, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are resident in our bodies. You see that? I don't understand the Trinity. The apostles didn't understand the Trinity. What makes me think I can't? I can't explain it. All I know is that that... Our Lord says in this passage that he is one with the Father and they're perfectly united and, and he is one with the Holy Spirit. They're perfectly united and all three are resident in our bodies. The God who created the universe lives in you and in me. And the Lord who lived that, that perfect life, who never sinned, lives in you and me. And all that happened to the apostles on the day of Pentecost. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. When? When I come to him. When is that? That's the day of Pentecost. Remember what happened? The 120. That, that's, that's the, that seems to be the sum total of all the people that were true believers after the crucifixion. 120 people. That was a result of three and a half years of ministry. They were all gathered in, in, in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And they heard something first. Remember, they heard a wind blowing. Now, you can't see the Spirit, but, but you can see what He's doing. That's why wind is such a good analogy to the activity of the Spirit of God. You can't see the wind, but you can see the trees bend over and you can see the dust blow. You can see the results of it. So they heard a wind. They heard something. And then they saw something. This fire came into the room. And then it distributed itself over the heads of all of the people. One, one flame, and then it broke into 120 parts, 
And they could look at the person next to them and see a little flame over the top of their head. And then it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I say, you know what? What is the purpose of this wind and this flame? Well, the purpose was to, it was an audio visual aid to show them what had happened because you can't see the Spirit. But they could hear the wind and they put two and two together. Ah, wind, same word as Spirit. Spirit is coming. And they see this flame, one flame dividing over the heads of all the believers that are in the room, and then they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. You see? And that's a once-for-all thing. It happened on Pentecost. That is what Francis Schaeffer would call a historical accident. It's not that it was accidental, but, I mean, it happened once. That's his point. It was never reduplicated again in exactly that same way. But it's an audio-visual aid to the church of what happens when you become a Christian. The wind begins to blow. The Spirit of God comes into the room, so to speak, comes into your life, and the fire of God becomes resident in your life. The Holy Spirit is there. And that's what Jesus means when he says, I will disclose myself to you. You will know on that day what has happened. Now, uh, Judas, who is uh, probably the one that's called Thaddeus in, in the other Gospels, he's not identified. This is not Judas Iscariot. One of the apostles, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? See, these were Jews who who believed that when Messiah came, the whole world would acknowledge him. They didn't quite understand. They couldn't put it all together. Jesus says, I, the world won't see me anymore, but you will see me. And, and Thaddeus starts thinking, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why is it that we will see you, but the world won't see you? Well, the Lord answers the question in verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone, if anyone, underscore that, that's his point. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. See, that's what it means to be a Christian again. This doesn't apply just to the apostles in the upper room. It applies to anyone who loves him. And who keeps his word. He says, my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. He says again what he said before. This is not so confusing. It doesn't apply just to the apostles. Anyone in the world who loves the Lord Jesus will have the Father and Son and Holy Spirit residing in his body. You see? Anyone. He who does not love me, does not keep my words... And we could, we could supply and he does not have the spirit then. And so we will understand that this is not just Jesus' uh, words, but it's backed up by the authority of the Father. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In other words, to resist Jesus' words, to not hear them, to not believe them, is to rebel against God. God sent his Son to give us that revelation. That if we know the Son, we know the Father. If we have the Son, we have the Father. If we put our trust in the Son, then the Son and the Father come to live in us. And Jesus said, I just want you to understand this is not just what I am saying, but what the Father is saying. And we could add to that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing is established. You see? This is truth. Now, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, in the first section, he has told the apostles 
of one ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that is indwelling. Our Lord comes in the person of the Holy Spirit to indwell. Now, notice how Jesus is arguing. I was with you. I was your helper. I was your friend. I was your companion. That's, that's what the word helper means. It means someone who, who's a sidekick, a, bu- a buddy, a companion. I, I was with you. Now he says, I'm in you. Now he says, I taught you while I was with you for three and a half years. You notice how he puts it? These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you in the incarnation. But the Helper, who is the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord Jesus, will continue to teach you. And so I have to ask the question, what's different? Nothing. Nothing. It's just that Jesus wasn't there in the flesh. He's just as much there before the, uh, or after the, uh, after his death and his resurrection than before. Do you see that? He was their companion. He was alongside. Now he says, I'm going to continue to be your companion. I was your teacher. Now I'm going to continue to teach you. Now, uh, I think that the first level of fulfillment is to the apostles themselves. Jesus says two things. He says, when the Spirit comes, he'll teach you all things and he'll bring all things to your remembrance that I have said to you. And I think those two promises are fulfilled first in the writing of the epistles, which were written first. You know, they were written before the Gospels. And uh, Matthew, uh, uh, well, Matthew didn't write an epistle, but uh, John wrote his little epistles, and Peter wrote his, his uh, letters, and, and uh, uh, that writing is the fulfillment of this promise that the Holy Spirit is going to teach you all things. And the writing of the Gospels is fulfilled in the second, or the second promise, that is, I'll bring all things to your remembrance, is fulfilled in the writing of the Gospels. You ever wondered how the, the apostles could remember with such exact uh, exactness, what Jesus said? Were they taking shorthand notes? No, no. The Spirit brought back to them what Jesus had said. So they were able to remember. And I think the writing of, of the prophetic books in the New Testament and the prophetic sections of the New Testament is fulfilled by a promise that comes later in, in John sixteen thirteen, when uh, the disciples are promised that the Lord would teach you things to come. So the Gospels, the Epistles, the book of Revelation, for example, are all the fulfillment of, of this promise. Though I'm not here, he says, to teach you, the Spirit will teach you. Now that was the fulfillment for the Apostles. But for us, it's this. It's what the Apostles have written. Do you see that? We have exactly what the Apostles had. They had the indwelling Spirit, which is the Lord Jesus. So do we. They had Jesus teaching them. So do we. You, you ever say to yourself, oh my, I wish I lived back then in the days when the Lord was incarnate and, and I could, could be with him and I could learn from him? Well, there's nothing different today. He's, with, he's resident, present with you, with the same power that he had before, and he is still teaching you. And here it is. It's this book. You know, if you and I knew that, that our Lord had a Bible study on Wednesday night here in Boise, we would turn up. Well, he does. See, here it is. Every time you open this book, it's our Lord teaching us. And how foolish we are to ignore this book. This is his instruction about life. This is the word from the Creator. As I often tell the, the men that I work with, this is the manual that goes along with man. This is the manual that goes along with women. It tells you what your manhood is for. It tells you why you're a man. It tells you what your womanhood is for and why you're a woman. 
It's, it's, you know, it tells us everything we need to know about life. It cuts through all the guff and the fluff that we get from the world around us, and it tells us what things really are. So it gives us a glimpse of reality. And how crazy of us to just ignore it, never read it, let it collect dust. See, this is our Lord's Word, His teaching to us. Now, these are the resources that we have. You and I, same resources that the apostles had. They had the indwelling Christ, and they had his teaching, you see? Now, that is what results in peace. That's why in verse 27, our Lord says, Peace, I leave with you. Now, he's using peace here by metonymy for the thing that produces peace. Uh, you have my presence, and you have my word. And the result of that is peace. Now, are you troubled? Are you upset? Are you rattled? By life, do you, are, you know, do you not know what to do next? But I want you to know this, Jesus says, you have the things that make for peace. Now, our Lord does not just pour a bucket of peace on us. He doesn't break off a, a piece of peace and give it to us. That's not what he's talking about. It's not something that comes from nowhere. It's peace that comes from knowing that you have the resources to cope with life. You understand that? You've got God himself in his word. That's what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 when he left them. He said, I'm leaving but I'm leaving behind the one legacy that really matters. I'm commending, commending you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, and that's all you need, and he left. That's why there aren't any apostles around anymore. We don't need them. What we have is God himself, the God of the word, and the word of God, which the apostles left, and we don't need anything else. That is adequate, and that's what makes us adequate. And it's with those resources that we can, can handle anything, anything that life brings our way. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, he says, I give to you. Not as the world gives us. Uh, the, the world's peace is always shallow and transitory. We've all gone through that. We know it doesn't work. Uh, not as the, the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. Now, you realize this brings us full circle. He started out saying, don't be, don't let your heart be troubled, back in 14.1, because they were afraid of, he was going, and Jesus said, it's all right, I'm going to come back. And they said, well, that's, you know, that, that's fine. I know you're coming back. My destiny is secure. But what about in the interim? How do I live life now? How do I cope with my, my situation? And the Lord says, all right, now let's talk about what brings peace now. It's my indwelling presence and my word. That's all you need, you see. That'll keep you together until I come back. Now, that just makes it simple. What else can I say? How simple can you get? There are all sorts of things you can do to make your life worthwhile. And there are things that are, there's nothing wrong with a lot of the things that we do to add zest to our lives and to give us the good times. But these are two things we cannot do without. These are the essential parameters, the fixed points around which everything else revolves. And we don't have these things. We don't have anything. But if we, if we have them, then everything else has meaning. And basically, they're these. The presence of the indwelling Christ and the Word of God. That's all we need. don't need a husband. You don't need a wife. You don't need to have children. You don't even need a job. You don't have to have health. What you need is what you have. You've got God and His Word. God indwelling you. That's all you need.
I was telling the interns last last week we have a uh, intern class and I'm talking about principles of the ministry and it seems to me that all the way through Scripture, the Lord just keeps saying the same things. What what you need to do is keep depending on the Lord, keep your eye on Him, keep counting on Him, and and keep holding on to His Word and dispensing it to others. And if you're doing that, then you're doing the ministry. That, that's all you need. Paul says in in First Corinthians four one, he says, if you want to if you want to consider us, you want to look at us and judge us. He said, I, that's no, that's a small matter to me. He said, I, I don't care if you judge me, criticize me. He said, I don't even criticize myself. Because I, I may be wrong, I just listen to what the Lord has to say. But he said, let me tell you what I'm trying to do and what is most meaningful to me. He says, I think of myself as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. Now there you have it. Those are the two elements again. A servant of Christ. And a steward of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God are the oracles of God, the scriptures. Now, he uses a word for, for servant that he does not normally use. The normal word is a bondservant. This is the word for the fellow that, uh, uh, that pulled on the oars in a Roman galley. And under rowers, literally the meaning of the word. And what he did, he kept his eye on the coxswain. Usually that was the captain of the, of the ship. Usually a Roman uh, officer. And he would sit up on a little stand, and he had a drum, and he would beat the drum, and that would establish the cadence. And he also handled the tiller. So all, all, all Paul says I have to do is just keep my eye on the Lord and keep pulling on the sweeps, and the direction that my life goes, and the speed with which it develops is all up to him. He determines the course. I just keep my eye on him, and I just pull to his cadence. And in, secondly, he says, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, a steward is a butler. He's a fellow who went down the basement and he got all, got the meat and drink and brought it up and served it to the Roman household. And Paul says, that's what I do. I'm like a butler. It goes down and gets the good things of God, the goodies. And I bring it up and, and just let people eat from the Word. And Paul says, there are a lot of other things I may do, but those are the basic things. Now, I just have to say again, how simple can you get? We just complicate things terribly. You want your life to matter? You want it to count? You want to have an influence on your neighborhood, your friends, your office, your campus, people in your farming community, whatever it may be? It's all you have to do. Just keep depending on the Lord who dwells you to live again the life that He lived 1,900 years ago through you. And see, our job is to make visible the invisible Christ. That's the first thing. I heard a man say at the, the conference this past week, he had a friend, he said, who's like a pane of glass. And I thought he meant he was transparent. You know, he was honest. But what he meant was you could look through the man and see the Lord Jesus. He went on to describe him that way. And, and, and I don't know about you, but my heart really longs for that. For people to just be able to see through me, you know, and, and not see anything there and just see the Lord. And I'm a long way from that. But that's what we want. That's what we want. To make visible the invisible Christ by our gracious, godly character in the midst of a world that has so few examples of righteousness. And then wherever we go, just to impart truth. I've often said the ministry is just making friends with people and imparting the truth. That's all it is. Just tell people what you've learned. Tell them what you learned here this morning. And tell them what you learned in the growth groups and what you learned in the women's Bible studies and the men's Bible study. Wherever you you get some truth given to you, just turn around and give it to somebody else. Just make a friend. 
Live out the life of Christ and impart the truth. And you know what will happen? You will do greater things than Jesus did. And if you want an example of this, here were, here were 12, 11 men now in this upper room, frightened out of their wits. And here was the, the strength of the Roman Empire standing against them. And after Pentecost, these men began to go out in the power of a risen, indwelling Christ and proclaim the truth. And within a hundred years, they basically evangelized the Roman Empire. There were churches in the major population centers of the Roman Empire. Matthew uh, uh, went off to uh, Scythia, as I understand. Uh, Andrew went to Arabia. Thomas went to India. Mark went to Egypt. And the gospel began to spread. Paul took the gospel off to Asia and Macedonia and, and Achaia. And uh, in 10 years, between 47 and 80, 47, 80, 57, he planted the gospel in an area about the size of the Pacific Northwest. He had churches going in every major metropolitan center. And there were thousands, thousands of people that came to Christ. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 came to Christ. Our Lord spent three and a half years in ministry and the most you can say about His ministry is that there were 120 hardcore believers and maybe 500 at the very, at the most that really had a, a, any faith at all because He was limited in time and space. He only uh, ministered for three and a half years and He was localized in Palestine. But the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and filled believers, and they went everywhere speaking to everyone. And the church has literally done far greater deeds than Jesus did. I mean, you and I today are the fruit, are the, are the evidence that what Jesus said is true. We're the result of those greater works. So, you know, why in the world are we frightened to go out and do what God has called us to do? That's why he says, just ask. Just ask. All you have to do, in my name, don't ask for a trip to the Bahamas, but ask for whatever is in line with his plan and his program for your life. Ask how you can be used. Ask him to use you. Ask him to lead you today to someone who has a need. Ask him to, to, to just get you to the right person this week, to say the right things. Ask him to make you sensitive to people around you. Ask him to use you to lead somebody to Christ this week. Just ask him. That's all he says. Just ask. And it's yours. See? And with that spirit, we can do greater deeds. Let's pray. Lord, we are uh, staggered by this promise. Forgive us for reading a verse like this and, and just reading right over it and uh, not taking it seriously. Not believing it. We'd like to see you use us here in this congregation to, to do these works right here in the city of Boise and in the state of Idaho and throughout the Pacific Northwest. And we know that's not too much to ask. So we want to make ourselves available to you today. Thank you for the presence of your spirit that makes it possible. We want to depend upon him. And uh, we want your life to be manifest in us wherever we go. We realize that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. There's no power resident in our mind or personality or background or education or experience that equips us for this sort of thing. We, we are not sufficient in ourselves. But we thank you that our sufficiency is in you. 
And we want to make ourselves available to you. We ask you to use us this week. Use your life in us and use your word to draw men and women to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.